The following audio is from First Baptist Pelham in Pelham, Alabama. More information about First Baptist Pelham is available at fbcpelham.org. are Christ. We give you our lives. So now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and meditation of each and every heart be pleasing in your sight and your sight alone. Help me to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. In his book entitled Transformational Discipleship, it was Eric Geiger who said that if an organization becomes careless in its core reason for existence, then it doesn't matter if that organization excels in other things. He said, take, for example, the Apple company. If Apple somehow becomes deficient in making computers, then their ability to have a high market marketing campaign doesn't matter. Take, for example, Starbucks. If Starbucks somehow becomes deficient in making coffee, then their ability to create a trendy ambiance doesn't matter. Take, for example, Nike. If Nike becomes deficient in making a durable tennis shoe, then its high-dollar endorsements don't matter. If an organization becomes careless in its core reason for existence, it does not matter if that organization excels in other things. When I read those words, I thought about the church. I asked myself the question, what is our core reason for existence? And what if we become careless and deficient in our core reason for existence? You and I live in a world that is filled with distractions. There's so many good things that we could be a part of, so many bad things that we should not do, yet all of it can come together and create distractions that keep us from being committed to the core reason for our existence. Last week, we began a six-part sermon series simply entitled, What on Earth Are We Doing?, whereby we're answering the question, why do we exist? This morning, I want you to know that we exist to make disciples one by one. Some of the harshest language that Jesus uses is reserved for the topic of discipleship. The reason he does this is so that you and I will know crystally, uh, crystal clear, uh, have an expectation that this is our core reason for existence. So this morning, I invite you to take a Bible. Turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. We'll be reading verses 25 to 35. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Luke, chapter 14. We'll begin at verse 25. We'll read through verse 35. Please hear the word. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? 
For if he lays the foundation, is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit neither for the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God, you may be seated. At this time in Jesus' ministry, he is a crowd favorite. He's at the top of his game. Every place Jesus went, he attracted a crowd. He was one of the most popular people on the planet. I don't know if we think of Jesus in these terms, but Jesus was a celebrity. Everywhere he went, people gathered around him, and on this day, large crowds flocked around the Savior. If the large crowds of antiquity are anything like large religious crowds today, then I suspect that there were people in that crowd that had their Jesus t-shirts on. They probably had their Jesus bracelets and Jesus bandanas. They may even had their Jesus bumper stickers that they slapped on the backside of their camels. There were people in that crowd that absolutely loved Jesus. And on this day, Jesus gives a lesson about discipleship to the entire crowd. Luke wants us to know that Jesus turned to the entire congregation. He did not just speak to the 20% of the people that are going to do 80% of the work. He didn't just pull the super saints aside, you know, those individuals who really want to get deep with Christ. No, he said this lesson on discipleship is for the entire crowd. It's almost as if Jesus was saying that if you can't get this, you can't get anything about following me. This is discipleship 101. This is basic, entry-level discipleship type of stuff. This is discipleship 101. Turning to the entire crowd, Jesus said, unless you hate your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Now, I don't know about you, but that statement shocks me It catches me off guard. Jesus says, unless you hate those that you say you love the most, then you cannot be my disciple. This seems harsh. It seems brash. It seems cruel. It might even seem unbiblical. But there are other places where it becomes abundantly clear that as God's people, we are to be known by love, not hate. For the great Shema says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second commandment is likened unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. One of the top ten commandments is a commandment for children to lovingly honor their parents. Throughout the Bible, we are told that husbands are to love their wives, that wives are to have loving respect for their husband, that children are to obey their parents, that parents are to rear their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and do it in such a loving way. To further complicate matters, 
Jesus said in John chapter 14, a new commandment I give you, love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Yet when we come to Luke chapter 14, Jesus clearly says that unless you hate, you can't be my disciple. There were times when I was growing up that I probably obeyed this verse better than I do today. I'm the middle of three children. I have an older sister and a younger brother, and there were times when it was easy for me to hate my brother and my sister. When I was a teenager, it wasn't too much of a stretch for me to hate my mom and my dad, for at that moment, I thought they were the two dumbest bricks on the planet. But when I was a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child, and hopefully, I've put some childish ways behind me. So now I can't imagine hating my mother and my father. I can't imagine hating my brother and my sister. I can't fathom hating my wife. I can't possibly comprehend hating my son and my daughter. There are days I don't like myself, but I can't fathom hating myself. Yet Jesus says, unless you hate, you can't be my disciple. If we look at the Greek New Testament text, that doesn't help us at all. Because the Greek word that Jesus uses is a strong verb. It actually means to detest. It means to despise. It literally means to hate. So what is Jesus driving at? What does he mean when he says, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to hate your mother, your father, your sister, your brothers, your wife, your children. Yes, even your own life. Unless you hate, you can't be my disciple. What is Jesus meaning? It was Daryl Bach in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, that gives us a helpful insight. He says that the call to hate is a call to love less. Jesus, he says, is using a cultural idiom. Every generation has language where its meaning is bound by the culture. Some of you may remember back in the 1980s, if someone was really good, you called them bad. That's a bad man. He's bad? What did he do wrong? No, he didn't do anything wrong. He did everything right. You know the group of people that look to that friend who's rather tall, large, obese, and they call him tiny? That doesn't make any sense. About 15 years ago, I served as a student pastor before I was a senior pastor. Every student ministry seems to be made up of the same types of individuals, in our student ministry, the young man's name was Daniel, but every student ministry has a Daniel. It's the person who is highly mischievous but has a tremendous upside. So as the youth pastor, whenever I went anywhere, I was always right beside Daniel. It wasn't because I liked Daniel. It was because I was afraid he was going to get the whole group in trouble. He would get us kicked out of restaurants, kicked out of stores, kicked out of uh, the mall. And so every place I went, I was always right beside Daniel. At one given event, we were going home. And before we went home, we went to the food court at the Galleria. We were seated there, and I was right beside Daniel, just like always. And all of a sudden, a group of teenage girls began to walk in front of our table. Now, what happens when a group of teenage girls walks in front of a teenage guy? He begins to gawk. He stares. It's almost as if he's saying, 
how you doing? You know, I mean, that's how, that, that's what was going on. So the crowd of girls, they begin to walk past. And right as they get in front of us, he elbows me and he says, you see that girl right there? I said, yes, Daniel, I see that girl right there. He said, I want to tell you, she's fat. <laughs> I said, Daniel, you better be quiet. She may hear you. He said, I don't care if she hears me because she's fat. I got to be honest. I looked at the girl. I didn't think she was fat. I mean, maybe she was husky. Maybe she was a little robust. Maybe, maybe she has some junk in the trunk. But who doesn't have junk in the trunk? So I looked at him and I said, Daniel, she is not fat. He says, yes, she is. I said, man, if you keep this up, she's going to hear you and she's going to come over here and deck you. And he says, oh, I hope she does hear me. He said, clearly, you don't know what I'm talking about. I said, no, I don't know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? He says, I don't mean F-A-T. I mean P-H-A-T. She's fat. And I went, oh, what does that mean? <laughs> He proceeded to enlighten me and told me that fat stood for pretty hot and tempting. Well, I began to talk about how we should not objectify women. They're, they're not creations for us to have eye candy, for us to just look at. No, no, they are stamped by the image of God. They have value and they have worth. After I got done with that student pastor uh, sermon, then I looked at him and I said, does everybody know about fat? He says, everybody knows about fat. Where have you been? I said, I don't know. I said, do you think Jane Ellen, my wife, knows about fat? He said, absolutely, Jane Ellen knows about fat. So then I went home. <laughs> Hindsight is always 2020. Why I was taking relational advice from a 17-year-old moron, I have no idea. I walk into the house. And I look at my wife, we actually live in an apartment. I walked into the apartment and I said to Jane Ellen, baby, you look fat. <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> Thinking that she didn't hear my compliment, I did what every compassionate husband would do. I said it louder and slower. Baby, you look fat. <laughs> From her Second response, I could tell that she heard my first response. And clearly, I realized she was not picking up what I was putting down. She didn't understand the cultural lingo. She didn't understand the language. When you and I come to Luke chapter 14, Jesus is speaking language that his disciples understand, but you and I may not readily understand. For when Jesus says, you've got to hate those that are closest to you, what he's saying is, you've got to love them less than you love me. In fact, Jesus is saying that your loyal love for the Lord has to be in a class all by itself. That actually, if you compare the love that you have for Christ versus the love that you have for your parents or your spouse or your children or your grandchildren, it would look as if you love Jesus and you hated them. It's not that you literally hate them, but the love that you have for them nowhere compares to the love that you have for the Lord, which is in a total different stratosphere. The implication is that Jesus is asking a question 
Who is in the first chair priority of your life? Everybody has a first chair priority. Everybody has it. And implicit in this opening statement, Jesus is asking, who is seated in that chair? Who's seated in the first chair priority of your life? Now realize that we're in the buckle of the Bible belt. It's Sunday morning. It's right after D now. We know how we're supposed to answer that question. Obviously, Jesus is the one who is seated in the first chair priority. But this morning I'm asking you, is he really? Is he really? Is Jesus the one who is seated in your first chair of priority? If you're waffling or wondering about this, let me give you three diagnostic questions. If you answer them honestly, it will reveal with accuracy who's seated in the first chair of priority. Question number one, who do you think about the most? Question number two, who do you rearrange your schedule for? Question number three, who do you make it your aim to please? You answer those three questions, it reveals with vivid accuracy who is seated in the first chair of priority of your life. Who do you think about the most? Who do you rearrange your schedule for? And who do you make it your aim to please? If we're really honest, there are times that our boyfriend, our girlfriend, our best friend is in that chair. There are times when our spouse, when our children, when our darling grandchildren are in that chair. And there are times more times than not, when we put ourselves in that chair. For who do we think about the most? Ourselves. Who do we rearrange our schedule for? Us. Who do we make it our aim to please? Voila. Most of us have a Miss Piggy mentality. Whatever moi wants, moi gets. And so that's how we live our life. That's how we organize our days. And yet Jesus comes along and he says, listen, if there's anyone in that chair other than me, that person today needs to be evicted to the curb. It's not that you literally have to hate them, but you have to say, excuse me, you're in the wrong seat. Because this seat is reserved for Jesus and Jesus alone. My friend, if there's somebody else other than Jesus who's seated in that first chair of priority, let me simply ask you, did that person create you? Did that person who's seated there outside of Jesus, did that person die for you? Did that person go to heaven to prepare an eternal place for you? And did that person promise that he would personally come back to receive you unto himself? The answer to all of that is no. Nobody else stacks up to the Savior. Nobody else stacks up to the Savior. Nobody else stacks up to the Savior. Your mama, your daddy, your children, your grandchildren, your spouse, not, a, not even you, no one stacks up to the Savior. He's in a class all by himself. I was talking about this this past summer at a Christian sports camp in Boston, Massachusetts. When I got done, um, there were two athletes that came up and wanted to talk to me after the message. I really thought I had offended them. I thought I said something that they were um, highly upset about. So I kind of began to brace myself a little bit for what might be coming. And the one stood there and he said, you know, Pastor, I, I always thought that Jesus was my highest priority. I, I thought he was 
in the first chair priority of my life. But after hearing you talk, I realized I put my coach there. I do whatever my coach tells me to do. I get up early. I practice hard. I practice more than anybody else. I do this because the coach tells me that if I give him my all, then I will get a scholarship to a D1 school to play football. And Pastor, that's what I want more than anything else. And today I realized that I put my coach in the chair priority of my life. And I told him, I said, man, if you figure this out now, your whole life will be better. Because Jesus is the one, not coach. Jesus is the one who needs to be in first place of priority of your life. The other young man stood there and he said, "Um, I got to be honest, I think it's mama. I think I put mama in the first chair priority of my life. Dad's not around. Uh, I, I make it my aim to please mom. I try to do what she says. I rearrange my schedule according to mom. And what I wanted to say is that your mama probably wants to be there. Because the truth of the matter is, for most parents, that's exactly where most parents want to be. They want to be top individual in their children's lives. But, oh, parent, you can't stack up to the Savior. And so that young man told me, he said, you know what? I think I got to kick mama to the curb. <laughs> I, said, well, I said, well, you got to do it with uh, respect. and You've got to do it with, with uh, adoration. But yes, Jesus must be number one in your life. Unless you hate your mother, your father, your wife, your children, your brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life, Jesus says you cannot be my disciple. You only put the cookies on the bottom shelf, here it comes. When it comes to Jesus, the only place that's the rightful place is first place in your life. That's it. The only place that's the rightful place is first place in your life. Jesus says, this is entry-level discipleship 101. If you don't get this, there's no way you can get anything else. You've got to love me with a loyal love that is greater than any love you have for anyone else. For your passion for Christ must be greater than your passion for your loved ones. But then he goes on. And Jesus says, unless you take up your cross daily, you can't be my disciple. Unless you become a cross-bearing Christian, you cannot be my disciple. The story is told of Clarence Jordan, who was the author of the Cotton Patch Version of the New Testament, that one day Clarence Jordan was receiving the red carpet tour of a new facility. It was the senior pastor that was showing him around the church. He showed uh, Clarence the imported wood from which the pews were made. He showed him all the elaborate decorations, the stained glass windows, all the furnishings that were provided and purchased by the church. They went outside the facility of the building. It was about dusk. The sun was setting. And all of a sudden, a large spotlight came on and was lifted in the direction of the steeple. Atop was a beautiful cross. The minister said to Clarence Jordan, you you see that cross up there? That cross cost us $20,000. Clarence Jordan said, I'd I'd heard enough. I've been quiet long enough. He said, so I looked at the minister and I said, you guys got cheated. The minister said, what? He said, y'all got cheated. Because there was a time 
when Christians could get those crosses for free, they'd be nailed to them at the point of death. And you, you had to pay $20,000 to get yours. <laughs> you got cheated. When Jesus says, you must be a Christ cross-bearing Christian, he's saying that this is the emblem of suffering. This is the emblem of our obedience. When Jesus says, unless you take up your cross daily and follow me, really what he's saying is you must be obsessed with obedience. Obedience to the will of God and the word of God must be at the highest priority of your life where you and I are obsessed with obedience. Jesus was obsessed with obedience. Have you ever uh, thought about the life of Jesus, that Jesus was one who was obsessed to obey the will of God? In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we read that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jesus understood he was on a crash collision course with Calvary. He knew that Jerusalem was his final destination. And even all the way back in Luke chapter 9, Jesus resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. Here we are in Luke chapter 14. There are large crowds that have gathered around. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 stop the band, stop the music, time out. I, got, I must know, do you understand what it means to be a disciple of Christ? He's saying to the crowd, you must love me with a loyal love. And you must be obsessed with obedience. Where you live your life and you say, Lord, I want to go where you want me to go. I want to do what you want me to do. I want to speak to who you want me to speak to. I give you my life. I'm obsessed with obedience. Jesus lived his life in such a way. In fact, he was so obsessed with obeying the will of the Father that religious leaders of his day called him names. Religious people ridiculed Jesus they said he was a drunkard. They said he was a glutton. They tried to give some low blows. They tried to say, hey, you can't follow this guy. He's a bozo. Religious people made fun of Jesus. Even his own family members thought he was wacky. For on more than one occasion, we, uh, we read that the family members of Jesus came to take charge of Jesus. You know what that means? They said, Jesus, listen, you're a little bit too radical, you're a little bit too fanatical, you're a little bit over the edge. We're gonna come and tell you what is appropriate, what's not appropriate, what you should do, what you shouldn't do. Listen, all this talk about going to Jerusalem and dying on a cross, listen, that's just hogwash. That's a little bit too far. We're gonna come and take charge of you. My friend, have you ever tried to tell Jesus what to do? You ever tried to tell Jesus where he can go and where he can't go? Have you ever tried to tell Jesus, this is how much you're gonna obey him and this is how much you're not gonna obey him? Have you ever tried to do that? I've tried to do it and it never works well for me. It never works well. Because Jesus says you must be obsessed with obedience. Every morning, you need to attend a funeral. You say, boy, that's morbid. No, it's not, it's biblical. Every day you attend a funeral, it's your own funeral. Where you say of the Lord, I die to myself, I've been raised in Christ and with Christ, I am yours. I'm obsessed with doing your will. Tony Evans is exactly right. Tony Evans says that it's the biblical mind producing biblical feet that we're after. If all we get are biblically literate people, we have missed it. 
The goal of discipleship is not filling our minds with biblical facts. The goal of discipleship is filling our lives with the biblical Jesus. The goal of discipleship is not information. The goal of discipleship is not merely inspiration. The goal of discipleship is transformation, where you and I look more like Jesus. We walk like him, and we talk like him, and we smell like him, and we act like him, and we care about the things he cares about, and we do the things that we see him doing. When you and I are transformed, that's when discipleship begins to take root. So the goal of discipleship, it's transformation. It was a 16th century Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, who said religion that costs nothing, gives nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. So Jesus says, count the cost. He's a great preacher. Jesus knows when to insert a perfect illustration. So that's what he does. He says how foolish it would be for a man to uh, begin a a building project without a budget. For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, then those who pass by will ridicule him saying, look, this man began to build, but he wasn't able to finish. Jesus is flying in the face of easy believism. The last thing Jesus wants is for us to make emotional decisions for Christ. He wants us to be effective disciples of Christ. He does not want us to be like a sparkler on the 4th of July that starts out strong and ends with a fizzle. He wants us to be on fire for him both now and forevermore. Jesus says, take for example a king who's about to go to war. A king better count the cost. How much is it going to take me to win this battle? Jesus said the king only has 10,000 soldiers in his army. He's going against one who outnumbers him two to one. For that enemy, that other one, has 20,000. And Jesus said if the king is not able to win because he's outmatched two to one, then he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off. And who asks for terms of peace. In the very same way, anyone who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Is Jesus calling us to poverty? The answer is no. And yes. Every great, great question has a yes, no answer. Is he calling us to poverty? No, he's not calling us just to empty our bank accounts and give everything unless he calls you to empty your bank accounts and give everything. It's one thing for you to own a house. It's another thing for that house to own you. It's one thing for you to own a car. It's another thing for that car to own you. When Jesus says you've got to give up everything, what he's saying is you've got to give me control. You've got to surrender everything unto me. I've got to be the one who calls the shots. In the church, we sing the song, I surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. And in his presence, I'll daily live. So I surrender it all. You know what we actually sing? 
I know we say the right words, but you know what we really mean? I surrender some. Some to Jesus, I surrender some to him, I begrudgingly give. I will sometimes love and trust him, and in his presence I'll sometimes live. So I surrender some. Some to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender some. And Jesus says, I can't have some, I've got to have all. Our friend David Platt would always tell the church, you live your life as if your life is a blank check and God gets to fill it out. God is the one who signs the check. God is the one that puts the amount in. St. Augustine said, Lord, I give you all that I am and what I cannot freely give you, I invite you to come in and take. What a prayer. God, I give you all that I am. But honestly, there are some places and parts that I can't give you. So what I can freely give you, I invite you to come in and to take. Discipleship, my friends, is not easy. And yet, it is the core reason for our existence. We exist to be a disciple of Christ. We exist to be disciple makers of Christ. We exist to be disciples and to make disciples one by one. Somewhere in the church, we have had a divorce between salvation and discipleship. It's a horrible divorce. There's a pastor on the West Coast who would say those two things need to go hand in hand. Salvation is in some ways easy because all the work's been done for you. Discipleship is hard. Salvation costs you nothing. Discipleship costs you everything. Salvation is like your wedding day. Discipleship is like 50 years of marriage. Salvation is like making babies. Discipleship is like raising them. Salvation is like scoring the winning touchdown on Friday night and being carried off the field. Discipleship is the meticulous, repetitious practice day after day, week after week, month after month. Salvation, easy. Discipleship, hard. Jesus says, Unless you're willing to give up everything, you can't be my disciple. What he's saying is discipleship means that you give him all your passion, all your priority, and all of your possessions. You give it all unto the Lord. And then Jesus finishes. Jesus says, if salt loses its saltiness, it is useless. It's not fit for the soil. It's not fit for the manure pile. It's simply just thrown out. Jesus understood that in the days of antiquity of the first century, it was possible for salt to lose its salty properties. That's almost impossible in these days, but it wasn't in the first century. The way salt was, was, was created was uh, water was taken from the Dead Sea. The reason the Dead Sea was called the Dead Sea was because it was such a high concentration of salt, there was nothing living that could exist in there. And so they would take water and they would burn the water away. What was left behind was a salt residue, a salt crystal. The refining process was so primitive that there were times that that salt would dissolve. 
It would attract other chlorides, maybe potassium and magnesium, and it would be possible for that salt to lose its saltiness. Salt was a precious commodity in the first century. Outside of the sun and the sky, it was known as the second greatest commodity on the planet. You've heard the expression, is he worth his salt? That's because Roman soldiers were oftentimes paid in salt. Salt was used to season food. It was used to preserve food, keep it from spoiling. It even had medicinal purposes. If you had a cut or a scrape, salt could be placed on there and you could provide some healing. But everybody understood that if salt lost its saltiness, it was useless. And all you had to do was place that salt on some fish. And after a couple of days, it would reveal whether it was salty or not. Because if that salt had lost its salty properties, that fish could be smelled from miles away. So what's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, don't be useless. You are a precious commodity to God. You are precious in God's sight. Don't be useless. Because there's nothing good with useless salt. It can't be thrown onto the soil and it can't be thrown onto the manure pile because today's manure pile is tomorrow's fertilizer. So if you throw it on the manure pile, it just contaminates uh, next year's crop. So what do you do with useless salt? You just throw it out and you trample it underfoot. So Jesus is saying to the crowd, don't waste your life. Don't be useless. You are a precious commodity to God. So use your life well. Follow hard after God. May you have a loyal love for Christ that is in a class all by itself. May you have priorities that say you're obsessed with obedience. May you surrender all your possessions unto the Lord as if you are a blank check in his sight. Be useful unto Christ. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with everything that you do. So many times we think about life and we compare it just to the hamster wheel. We're just spinning our wheels. We're just going round and round. Ken Blanchard said it this way. He said, listen, most of us think of life as a rat race. But even if you win the race, you're still nothing more than a rat. Think about that. So why are you here? Why do you exist? What on earth are we doing? We are here to be disciples and we are here to make disciples. We are here to model what it looks like to be a discipler and a a disciple follower of Christ. That is why we are here. So this morning I close with one question. What are you gonna do with the dash of your life? If you ever go to a cemetery, you realize that all of life It's summed up in a dash. Just look at a tombstone. You have the birth date, the death date. In the middle, there is a dash. It's pretty sobering to realize that all of life is summed up in a three-inch dash. That's it. That's all of life. All your success, all your setbacks, all your fame, all your fortune, all your accomplishments, all your sickness, all your sadness, all your disease, all your children, all your family, all your finances, everything summed up in a dash. What are you going to do with yours? What are you going to do with that dash? It's the same dash whether it's nine months or 90 years, it's a dash. (laughs) So what are you going to do with your dash? The person who is most used in the kingdom of God is the man or woman 
who lives in complete surrender to the Savior. So you surrender it all to Christ. Give him everything. First chair priority. Give him everything. All your priorities. Give him everything. All your possessions. Give him everything. Say, Lord, today I want to do what you want me to do and go where you want me to go and say what you want me to say. I am yours. I do not belong to myself. I am tired of running in just the rat race of life. Lord, I belong to you. And I promise you, my friend, when you and I begin to live this way, it is liberating because we realize we are not our own. We belong to Christ. So this morning, are you here and you've never accepted this Jesus? This is the Jesus of the gospel. Are you here this morning? And let's just be honest, there are some wrong people in your first chair priority and you need to come and say, Lord, I give you that sacred spot once again. Or maybe you're here and you need to come and join this faith family. I'm gonna pray, we're gonna sing, and then you come and you be obsessed with obedience to the glory of God. He who has an ear, let him hear. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation, and Lord, we pray that you'll be honored and glorified through this invitation. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about First Baptist Pelham and other free resources like this one, log on to fbcpelham.org.